there are many people in our church who are um, going through the fire. They're walking through the fire and they're wondering what you're wondering. How, by faith, can I make it? Can I walk with the Lord through uh, the hard times? Um, and we're finishing up that series this morning, our series on the book of James, our series uh, at the tail end on the life of Job, which is uh, summarizing all of that. So I want to begin by telling you what's next before we get into the last sermon of this series. Starting next week, we're going to go into a series called Find Your Voice. Um, find Your Voice. We are going to learn how to discuss current issues with grace and truth. Um, the topics that are going to come up over a nine-week series will include Islam and terrorism, racism and violence, God and government, including elections um, and the Supreme Court, uh, LGBT issues and gay marriage, and abortion. We are going there. And we're going there because uh, I feel like our church has not quite found our voice on many of these issues yet, and I see too many Christians who either get silent or obnoxious when they have the chance to say something helpful in the conversation that's going on in our culture. My goal is that we would all aspire to aim for being uh, gracious and truthful as we have a chance to discuss these topics. We're going to start that next Sunday. We have a guest speaker next week from RZIM Ministries. You know, Ravi Zacharias is a key partnership we have um, in our missions and outreach. They're an apologetics organization. They travel the world and share the gospel in places that are hostile. Um, and Abdul Murray is going to come from RZIM. He uh, is a, uh, was a Muslim, and he's converted to Christianity. He's going to uh, kick off the series by telling us how we can understand and talk about Islam um, with grace and truth. So if you feel like, boy, I want to know more about how to reach out to Muslims, understand their thinking, make a conversation count when I have the chance you know, to do that. Hey, be here next Sunday. Abdul Murray is coming in. He's, uh, this is really awesome. I contacted RCIM a little over a month ago, you know, long shot, said, hey, I'm doing this new series. I'd love for somebody to come down. And they're like, sure. So it's really remarkable that this guy who travels the globe is coming to be with us next week. He's going to kick it off. Um, so we'll talk about Islam and terror and then move on to racism and violence. Spend a few weeks on God and government, several weeks on LGBT issues and gay marriage, and then a week on abortion and pro-life issues. That's what's coming. I hope you're excited about it. Uh, bring your loudest friend with his strongest opinions to the next several weeks of series, all right? All right, all in favor of that? Bring your loudest friend with the strongest opinions who says the most on Facebook. Invite him out. I'd love to meet him. <laughs> But for this morning, we're finishing up Faith in the Fire, our look through the book of James. So let's begin that. Um, I wanted to begin by making you feel better about your problems by showing you pictures of people who had a much worse week than you. Check it out. This guy had a much worse week than you. Went for a jog, fell into a cactus. Ouch! Feel better? Here's the next picture. This person who was, their crockpot just broke. The whole bottom fell out. Having a much worse week than you. Here's another picture. This person, apparently the lids weren't quite on, sealed tightly. Yeah. You got to go through the car wash with the car open to get, to get that out. And uh, next, uh, this one's pretty awesome. The moon fell out of the sky. No, really, in China, this, is, this really happened. Uh, it's actually an inflatable moon. But they didn't know that in the moment. You know, I've seen Despicable Me. These things happen. The moon <laughs> falls out of the sky. And so the, they really had quite a traffic jam because of that. <laughs> well, 
we've, we've all got problems, and sometimes other people's problems make us feel better about our own, but how can we walk by faith through any trial? We're looking at the life of Job, and he, boy, he, his problems make me feel a whole lot better about my problems, amen? I mean, wow, what God has done to him. Um, he is going to show us now how his story ends. The sermon's called The End of the Tunnel, uh, and we're going to look at the end of the story of Job to get perspective on how all of your trials will end also. Let's pray, and then we'll get into the word together. Father, we thank you that you're faithful, you're good, you're true, you're just, you're present, you're all these things, and you are all of these things when we are suffering. Help us, Lord, to gain perspective on our pain. Help us to have confidence that you have a plan in our trials. We pray, O Lord, that you administer to us through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Find the book of Job, turn to chapter 38. If you missed last week, we covered about 32 chapters of the book of Job in one morning. It was awesome. I mean, we wrapped it up by 6 p.m., and we all got home in time for a late supper. So much less ground to cover this week, (laughs) but we're heading to the tail end of the book, so you're going to go to Job chapter 38. And what I want you to see there is something changes. Job's friends have been around. They've been giving him lousy uh, comfort, uh, saying true things in a harsh manner. And then in chapter 38, it says in the headline, the Lord answers Job. God shows up to have a conversation with Job at the tail end of his trial. The three other sermons on Job are online. Make sure you catch them, but here's a summary. Satan came into the presence of the Lord. God applauded Job's faithfulness to Satan. He basically was throwing it in Satan's face that he can't get Job. Have you considered my servant Job? There's none like him in all the earth. Satan uh, slandered God in heaven and said, does Job serve you for no reason? Basically insinuating that God's bribing Job with all of these blessings to get him to follow God. That was a lie. God wanted to expose the lie of Satan. Satan was falsely accusing God of playing favorites and falsely accusing Job of liking the goodie bag, but not the God behind the goodie bag. So God said, all that is in his life, go ahead, you can touch it. So Job came down and um, he took all of Job's money away. He was insanely rich. He was the richest man in the whole region. God, Job took it, uh, God, Satan took it all away in an instant. He lost all of his money on, an in, on a single day and Satan had power to harm his family. So a freak storm showed up and the roof collapsed and Job lost 10 kids, 10 kids on the same day. His grown children all dead, 10 funerals, same week. He fell on his face and he said, naked I came into the world, naked I will leave. The Lord has given, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Round one, Job passed. He didn't curse God. Satan came back into the presence of the Lord. God brought it up again. If you consider my servant Job, though you incited me against him, he still worships me. Job said, or Satan said, well, you haven't let me touch his skin. And so God said, all right, fine, you can take his health. So Satan went down and inflicted Job with sores from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet. Uh, He was deathly ill. He was dying a slow and agonizing death. He couldn't sleep. He had a fever. His body was bloating up. He was, uh, all of his friends abandoned him. Who wants to stand near that guy, right? So he lost everything, including his health. Um, And we spent a few weeks looking at how Job found comfort in that. He stayed with the Lord. He lamented all of his pain, but he didn't curse God. And, And now... 
after months and months of agony with no end in sight, we reach the end of the tunnel. God breaks the silence. God shows up in chapter 38, verse 1. It says, then the Lord answered Job. Wow, God is real. He is present and he answered Job. He talked to one person in a world full of people. Then the Lord answered Job. What God didn't do right away is he didn't heal Job. He didn't bring all of his kids back. He didn't give all of his money back. He had a conversation with him. In, in his pain, God spoke to Job. He didn't clear up the pain and then say, are we good? He talked to him in his pain. Write this down. Number one, ask God to meet you in your pain and display his glorious presence. Ask him. Expect it. Invite him right here and now to speak to you while you're suffering. And don't close your ears until the pain goes away. I don't want to talk to him until all my suffering is gone. Then I'll listen. Then I'll go back to church. Then I'll open my Bible. Nope, you're missing it. Ask him to speak to you in your pain because he has things to say to you. It says in verse 1, Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man, and I will question you, and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk, or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? God is treating Job as if he's on a witness stand, and he's cross-examining him. Now, you might think this sounds harsh. This sounds cold. This is exactly what Job asked for. He wanted a hearing with God. God was giving him what he asked for. All right? This is what you wanted. Let me ask you some questions. And while God is confronting Job in some things that he said that were rash and ignorant and foolish, the Bible never accuses Job of sinning. So God is rebuking, he's disciplining, he's, he's showing Job where he's fallen short. But Job has not sinned, all right? So, so God is not bringing his judgment, he's bringing his correction on what Job has said. It's important to note that distinction. God is meeting Job in his pain and displaying his glorious presence. How? It says in verse 1, God answered Job out of the whirlwind. Out of the whirlwind. God appeared to Job in a whirlwind, like a hurricane or a tornado. We have a picture of a tornado here. I'm going to keep that up there for a second. Sometimes I imagine having a conversation with God. It's mostly like me talking to like, you know, an old grandfatherly bearded man maybe, maybe Morgan Freeman, somebody. I don't imagine that as being me talking to a tornado when, when me and God have a conversation. I don't imagine that as being a talking tornado and me talking. God chose to appear to Job in a whirlwind. God can appear in many ways. Burning bush, cloud of thunder on Sinai. He chose to talk to Job in a tornado. Do you know why? Do you know why? Have you seen it yet? How did his kids die? God chose to speak to Job to 
overwhelm his senses, to terrify him. His heart is racing. He's holding his ears. The wind is rushing. The rain is pelting him in the face. But the emotional trauma, God is appearing to Job in the form of his greatest pain and grief. This is his worst nightmare. If anything could drive Job to curse God to his face, this is it. God manifests himself in the form of Job's greatest pain and loss. God is speaking to Job from inside of his worst nightmare. And the challenge was, he will curse you to your face. Job is seeing that God is taking personal responsibility for all of his pain. I did this to you. And God doesn't show up with grace, he shows up with truth. To the believer, knowing God is responsible for all of your pain will bring you the greatest comfort. Knowing God is responsible for all of your pain will bring you the greatest comfort. Be careful there, he's not the blameworthy cause of the sinful choices of you or others. But he did allow it, and he will use it. Knowing he's sovereign over all of your suffering is what will bring you the greatest comfort. Jot this down. Here's Job's response. Humbly, silently acknowledge that you are very, very small. Check out chapter 40, verse 3. God goes on a long speech here, and then Job responds in chapter 40, verse 3. He says this. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I've spoken once and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. Job's answer, I'm small, I'm quiet, I'm saying nothing. He's small, he's quiet, he's saying nothing. He's humbling himself in the presence of the Lord who's taking ownership for all of his pain. God asked Job a series of 64 questions in these chapters about creation, land, sea, sky, space, animals, instincts, weather, water cycle. God was saying, show me one place where you can inform me or correct me. God's not being harsh. He's not being unloving. Job wanted an audience with God and he got it. Satan wanted Job to curse God to his face and this is his chance, to your face. This is his chance. This is the test and this is Job's heart. What we read in these chapters is a beautiful portrayal of God, the immensity of God. God says amazing things to Job. He says, I'm the one who binds the sea. Check it out. Here's a picture of the sea being bound. Sea, terrifying, wild, unruly, untamable. And God says, I, I bound the sea. I invented shore brings a lot of stability into our life. We know what happens when the sea is unbound through a tsunami or something, and yet God says, I bound the sea. God says, I walk on the ocean floor. He's everywhere. He says that he waters the desert like it's his garden. Here's a picture of a desert. He says, I water the desert like it's my garden. He causes things to grow where nothing can grow. He brings life where there's no life. He says, I freeze the water so it's hard as stone. Pretty amazing. 
Here's a picture of a frozen lake. I freeze the water so it's hard as stone. It's pretty wonderful to think of water so fluid and changeable becoming something that's as hard as a rock. He says, I did that. I do that constantly. I thought that up. He told Job he's the one who walks the constellations across the night sky like they're his pets. Think of the order, the mathematical order that it requires to create constellations, stars that are traveling, uh, that are traveling so quickly, racing away from one another, and yet they're bound up through marvels of math, physics, so that they stay together in the sky. And we see the order, the beauty. God is sovereign over the stars in the sky. Huge, massive, burning infernos, and he's the one who directs them. He tells Job that he's the one who feeds the lions and the birds. Here's, what would it, I have a dog. I know what it costs to feed my dog, and he eats too much. We're trying to get him to lose weight, because then that would be easier on the budget. What do you think it would cost to feed just this group for a week of lions? How many trips to Petco would you need to make to feed them for a week, let alone a lifetime, let alone all of them, let alone tens of thousands of years? God says, I feed them. He created the circle of life. He created the food chain. He thought that up. Here's the birds. And he feeds not only the big, but the little. Worm. Feed a worm. Another worm. Feed a worm. He thought that whole thing up. And they make it. They make it. You know that when you get in your car and your windshield, there's a little surprise for you in the morning. They make it. They ate yesterday, somehow, again. God describes his immensity to Job. Job's response is humbly and silently he acknowledges that he is very, very small. Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. Spoken once, I'll not answer twice. I'll proceed no further. One commentator said, this is an invitation by God to accept our limitations and let God be God. Let God be God. He's in control of everything. He's huge. You're small. I had a conversation this last week with a friend who I hadn't seen in 20 years. His name is Ray. He works at Argonne. He's really smart. You know somebody's really smart when you ask them what they do and they laugh. And then they try and explain it to you, and you don't even understand their job title, let alone what it is that they actually do. Um, but he, after a while, I started to understand. He works in x-ray optics. He builds lenses, small microscopic lenses, that focus x-ray beams down to one billionth of a meter. It's called a nanometer. One billionth of a meter. He works in a small world. We have a picture of something that he just designed. He just, that, he just built that. Right. I have trouble with, with like Legos and uh, with the instructions. And he thought that up and built it. And I said, give me, a, give me a size scope comparison on what it is that you deal with. He said, well, it's so small. He said, it, you know, as I looked it up, if you take a sheet of paper, okay, so if you take one sheet of paper and you slice it into 100,000 slices in thickness, if you slice this into 100,000 slices, he works with like eight or nine of those slices. That's how small, how thin, how minuscule of a world he lives in. 
It's tiny, and he builds these small lenses to focus light. I don't know how he does it, and those lenses are mind-blowing. They have 10,000 layers to them to focus the light. I don't understand what he does. But what I do know is this. It's really small. He lives, he works with things that are so small, a billionth of a meter. By comparison, that's you compared to God. God is immense compared to you. The universe can't contain him. He is immense. You are microscopic. And God's immensity is your security. You don't have to be God trying to control your kids. You don't have to be God trying to secure your finances or protect your body from death. You can't. The truth is, you didn't make anything in this world. The truth is, you can't control anything in this universe. Be careful not to scrutinize God's management of your world. Because the truth is, you can't improve upon anything that he's doing. Not one tip you give him will make him a better God. Rest in that. Ask God to meet you in your pain. Display his glorious presence humbly, silently acknowledge that you are very, very small. Write this down. Confidently affirm that God can do anything. So check out chapter 41, verse 2. This is uh, actually, it's uh, later. It's verse 42, verse 1. 42, verse 1. Job says this. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? He's repeating God's question. Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Here and I will speak, I will question you, and you make it known to me. He's repeating God's question again. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Hey, confidently affirm God can do anything. God forced Job to respond to a terrifying display of his capacity to bring pain. He's talking to a tornado. He's terrified. And God forced Job to respond to the staggering truth that he rules over the whole universe. To the believer, knowing that God is in control of every part of your life brings tremendous comfort. He's in control of all of it. That will bring you comfort. His plan cannot be thwarted. His knowledge is unfathomable, and he's here. God never abandons the righteous. He literally showed up and talked to Job, but he was always there. One writer said this, Job is satisfied. His vision of God has been expanded beyond all previous bounds. He has a new appreciation of the scope and harmony of God's world, of which he is but a small part. Ask God to meet you in your pain, to display his glorious presence. You will learn how great his knowledge is, his wisdom is, his goodness is, his justice is. You will learn all of that if you don't give up. But we see now that it's a process. God could have appeared from the beginning, but he didn't. So number two, write this down. Endure patiently through the process of growth. It will be a process. Uh, we see here that the richest, happiest man alive is now humble and content with nothing but his relationship to God in the presence of his pain. It is well with his soul, but it took a while for him to get there. 
I love what Job 23.10 says. Job says, but he knows the way that I take. When he has tried me, I shall come out as gold. Listen, God will send you through the rock tumbler, the process of pain time and again. You have to say with confidence, he knows the way I take. After he has tried me, I will come forth as gold. That describes a hundred trials you'll face in this world, and it describes your life in its entirety. There is a cycle, there is a process, you can jot these words down. It begins in a phase that we could call orientation. You become orientated with God, who He is, how He rules, what the Bible says. My daughter started high school this year, so we went to the high school orientation. We walked around, we uh, Learn from the teachers what's expected, what the rules are, what the assignments are. Orientation. God's Word teaches you the way things are, the way they usually are, and who God is. But then, trials come, and you hit a phase called disorientation. You can write that down. Disorientation. This is the crisis of pain. This is when things aren't going how they're supposed to be going. This is when God doesn't seem to be acting like the God I read about in the Bible. And there's a crisis of faith. How do I square my pain with what I know to be true about God? The Psalms are filled with cries of the heart of people trying to cope and make sense with, with the fact that their life isn't going the way it's supposed to go. God isn't acting the way he's supposed to act. It's called disorientation. Then comes reorientation. This is when God restores, renews, gives strength, matures you, Based on your new understanding of him, of his wisdom, of his knowledge, of his plan, you have a new view of God. It's not that the truth of God ever changed. Listen, the last thing anybody in a trial wants is to learn a hundred new things about God that they never knew. You know what you need when you're in the middle of a trial? You need to know that everything that you know about God is still true. That's what you need. I need to know that everything that I know about God is still true right now. So reorientation isn't, wow, now I know five different ways. You learn lessons, but you are reoriented to the same truth. You see the same God through new eyes because of what he's done. Biblical examples of these phases would include David. I think, think of King David. He was anointed, right, by Samuel when he was just a wee little lad. And, and then he went out and killed Goliath. Yes, the wicked die orientation. Everything is going the way it's supposed to go. I'm anointed king, and that wicked guy is dead. Well, then Saul tries to kill him, and David's on the run. He's living in caves. He's living in forests. He's acting like he's insane. He's drooling down his beard. That's disorientation. Crisis of faith. Why did God, who promised that I'd be on the throne, not let me be on the throne? The king's trying to kill me. He's throwing spears at me. Disorientation. Then finally Saul dies, David's anointed king, and David sees that God was in control all along. David's reorientation shows how awesome God is. You will go through this process throughout your life again and again, and then the process will eventually end, and you will be permanently restored in God's presence. That's a good day. Endure patiently through the process of growth. You will come forth as gold. God stamps an expiration date on every one of your trials. Most of them will end in this life. Some of them will end in the next life. All of them will expire. Ask God to meet you in your pain and display His glorious presence. Endure patiently through the process of growth. Number three, believe God will soon restore you completely. 
We're focusing now in on God's ability to restore you after a trial. How did this end? We'll check out 42 verse 7. It says in verse 7, After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz, the Temanite, My anger burns against you and against your two friends. This is a bad, bad day for this guy. All right, what's worse than a talking tornado? An angry talking tornado. <laughs> my anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. Now therefore take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves. And my servant Job shall pray for you, for I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly. For you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite went, did what the Lord had told them, and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. What we see here is God's beginning to restore Job. Um, you have to believe that God will soon restore you completely. Wherever there's brokenness and pain, he can restore it. He will restore it. He begins by uh, starting to repair Job's relationships. You can write that down, his relationships. This includes his reputation. Everyone thought Job did something wrong to deserve this. God's upset for a reason. It turns out Job was the best of the bunch. So good that God wouldn't forgive the friends until they offered a sacrifice, until Job prayed for them. You see how this foreshadows Jesus now, don't you? Do you see how this foreshadows Jesus? He would fall under God's judgment and wrath even though he did nothing wrong. The rulers of Israel would say, ah, yeah, God's cursed him, that's why he died on the cross. And the book of Job shows us that that's not true. The, the most righteous guy in the bunch can be the one suffering the worst. So here we have Job, who was a suffering servant of God, and he's now making intercession for his boneheaded friends. His prayer leads to their forgiveness. Do you see how Christ is foreshadowed in this? Jesus would make intercession for us after he suffered though he didn't deserve it. He's the suffering servant of God who brings forgiveness to those who come to him. This foreshadows Christ. So they did it. Job prayed for them. He had to think about it for a second. I guarantee you he did. He was probably like, oh, maybe I don't want to. But he did. So God started restoring his relationships, elevating his reputation. God did something to vindicate Job. He put a whole book of the Bible named after him smack dab in the middle of it. God didn't tell him this. Job asked for this. All that my words were inscribed, written on a scroll. God said, done. Sure. Whole book of the Bible now. Over 40 chapters. It's been read for 4,000 years. Satan's not happy about that. Not at all. We're reading it today. He vindicated Job. He restored his relationships and his reputation. Do you know that God is in control of your relationships? Do you know that God is in control of your reputation? I wonder if right now part of your trial is you're suffering disgrace that is undeserved. Your friends think, you deserved it! You're suffering because you have messed up. And you're like, I didn't really do anything wrong. It's not my fault. And they don't buy it. Hey, if you're suffering disgrace that's undeserved, look to Job. Trust God because he's in control of your reputation. He's also in control of your relationships. Everyone thought Job was cursed. 
He lost all 10 kids. He lost his health. He lost his fortune. Would you go to his family party? Hey, buddy. You wouldn't touch him. He'd be like, oh, we're not going over there. He's cursed. Anybody who goes by him is dead. So everybody avoided him. It says in verse 10, And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends, and the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Then came to him all his brothers and sisters and all who had known him before and ate bread with him in his house. They showed him sympathy and comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. Each of them gave him a piece of money and a ring of gold. His relationships are being renewed. We find out here that he had sisters, he had brothers. They didn't want to come, didn't want to help him. No charity, no fellowship. Do you have, do you have family members who are difficult to get along with? Like family members who you know, even if you were going through it, they would not be there for you. Job's world. Job's world. Oh, after he's healthy and well, then we'll go see him. All right, we'll go to that family party now. But uh, it's sad. It's hurtful. But God brought about restoration. God is in control of your relationships. Hey, is part of your trial right now broken relationships? Because God can restore those. What we're seeing here is, as we've been learning, there are many different ways that God can test and try your faith. One of them is conflict with other people. Maybe this is the one that's making your life hard. Trust God to renew your relationships. Uh, Love, in the book of James, is loving difficult people, getting along with people who have bad hearts, impure motives, and trust God to renew your heart for them. The words that have been spoken... Maybe it's the things people have said to you and that's the burden that you carry around. God can restore your relationships. He can help you and these things are testing you. Sickness is the one that, of course, took Job out for so long. And look, God's going to restore him in this. He lost all of his money. God can use money to test your faith, but God is the one who can restore your finances. And time, when Job just had to wait it out, it wasn't going away quickly. God just isn't working yet. Time, the wait, the delay. This is how God challenges your faith. So he rebuilds Job's relationships and his reputation. The next one, write this down, is his fortune. It says in verse 12, And the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. He had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, 1,000 female donkeys. Double! How would you feel if by the end of this year you heard that Bill Gates had doubled his fortune? how would you feel? And what if God said, I chose to do that? You would hate it. Don't lie in church. Be so envious, so jealous, so indignant, just trying to get the bills paid, get my kids through college, and he has double. I just acted you out for you. Hope you're welcome. Sometimes God prospers people insanely rich, and God does it. Obviously, money was not the test that would do Job in. Otherwise, Satan would have asked that God would double his fortune to begin with, and he didn't. So God doubles Job's fortune. God could double your income overnight. How many of you just thought to yourself, why doesn't he? Job's already the richest man around. Now he's got twice as much. 
Is this excessive? God doesn't think so. He prospers as he sees fit. God is in control of your finances. You can trust him to meet your needs. You can trust him to restore you when you go through a financial valley. God can always meet your needs. How faithless we are. How faithless we are when we swipe the credit card at the end of the month to try and get our needs met. When J.P. Morgan becomes our God because we don't stop and ask our Heavenly Father to give. How faithless we are. He can double your fortune overnight. He doesn't because he wants to teach you to trust him. But we don't trust him. We trust ourselves. We live in the most prosperous nation in the history of humanity. And the national credit card bill is in the trillions. Why? It's never enough. It's never enough. Don't ever think more would make you happier or more secure. That didn't work with the richest country ever. More is not the answer for you. God is the answer for you. Trust him to manage your finances and he will restore your fortunes. Well, that sounds like name it, claim it, preacher. No, I'm not promising that you're going to be rich in this life. I am promising that in the next life you'll be loaded. Your driveway will be gold. Can't take anything with you out of this life. So God wants to prosper you here and forever. Trust him. Um, next, God restored Job's family. You can write that down. This is pretty awesome. It says in verse 13, he had also seven sons and three daughters. So now he's been a parent of 20. He had 10, they all died at once. He walked by faith through that trial. Now he's got 10 more. We don't know how old he was when this trial began, but um, it's interesting that if God's doubling things, maybe, maybe he, you know, is doubling, you know, giving him twice the life that he would have had, you know? So as we read on, it sounds like Job maybe is like 70 who knows, somewhere between 55 and 70, and then he starts having kids again, and he has 10 of them. So they're not empty nesters for a long time, and they're old. You think it's awesome that Abraham and Sarah had a miracle baby when they were like in their upper 90s? Yeah, yeah, Job had 10. 10. How awesome is that? God's control over life and the body, baby after baby, baby shower. He's got to assemble all these cribs again. I mean, he thought that was done. They're painting the nursery, and they're in their 80s and 90s. This is pretty awesome. God gives 10 kids to him. It's fascinating that he also has, just like he had before, three girls, seven boys. He had also seven sons and three daughters. Verse 14, and he called the name of his first daughter Jemima, and the name of his second Keziah, and the name of the third Karen Hapak. And in the land there were no women so beautiful as Job's daughters. And their father gave them an inheritance among their brothers. Wow. Gave him his family back. What a thrill! And what power and love God has displayed. His family back. His fortune back. His relationships, back. His health, you can write that down. His health, back. It says, and after this, Job lived 140 years. So, I don't know how to think about that, but like if, 
If he was about 70, maybe, when this all was happening, and he was on death's door, no chance really of recovering, he didn't have a hospital. There was no Walgreens, no prescriptions. Big Pharma hadn't been invented yet. He's 70, deathly ill, comes out, lives another 140 years. So maybe he's 70 because if he gets 140 more, that's like God doubling the life that he lives. See, he like doubles the, you know, the wealth, the fortune, and, and now maybe he doubles his life. I don't know. We don't know how old he actually was when he died, but he was really old. Now, at this point, there are some people who are skeptical in the audience thinking, talking tornadoes, men living to be, um, you know, 200 years old. How can I believe that? Um, God is awesome and huge. This fits with the narrative of our scripture. If this happened 2000, you know, BC, if this happened so long ago, we believe that the earth was created to be paradise. It was perfect. Humans were made uh, flawless, and then sin entered the world. Their bodies started breaking down. Their world started breaking down. Uh, nature started breaking down. So, like, we're like the <laughs> we're like the byproduct today in a world that's all messed up, which is why we have so many health problems. Back then, not as bad. People lived really old early in the Bible. And if you believe in a God, and if you believe in our story of how things were great, and then they started skidding, that's not really a problem. It's not really a problem for me to believe that. God talking through a tornado? Well, how, how could that really be? Again, if he's a God, he can do it if he wants to. God gave him his health back. You got to be healthy to live another 140 years after you almost die, right? He gave him his health back. God controls your health. If God wants you to live 100 years, you live 100 years. I thought it was amazing when God gave Hezekiah 15 bonus years on his life because he prayed and he humbled himself. Job got 140. 140. I'm not even 40 yet. 40? It's going to happen next year. I'm not even there yet. My life plus 100 is, is the overtime Job got. God's that in control of the length of your life. It's in his hands. He gave him his health back. Write this down. He gave him his faith back. He didn't lose it, but he hit some low spots. He was weak. He was questioning. He was confused. Now he's back to a solid place. His head was above the water. He saw God in glorious terror, and now he heard, he confessed of God's goodness. How do we know that his faith was restored and strong? Well, it says he lived 140 years, and Job died an old man and full of days. So he lived 140 years, after the trial. What does that tell you? That tells you that you could walk by faith in the Lord for 140 years after you lose everything in your life. After your worst trial, you can follow God by faith for another two lifetimes. That's how awesome God is. That's how faithful Job was. He walked by faith for 140 years after his whole life burned to the ground. His faith was renewed by God. I love what Psalm 66, 10 to 11 says. It says this, For you, O God, have tested us. You have tried us as silver is tried. You brought us into the net. You laid a crushing burden on our backs. You let men ride over our heads. We went through fire, through water, yet you have brought us out to a place of abundance. You have brought us out to a place of abundance. Remember, this life is only an appetizer. And God will fulfill all of your hopes and dreams and desires in the world to come. I love what 
Pyotr Dostoevsky says, he was a Russian Orthodox Christian. He said, I believe that in the world's finale, at the moment of eternal harmony, something so precious will come to pass that it will suffice for all hearts, for the comforting of all resentments, for the atonement of all the crimes of humanity, of all the blood that they've shed, that it will make it not only possible to forgive, but to justify all that has happened. In the end, God will justify all that has happened. He will show that he was in control and he brought good out of it. I'm a big Lord of the Rings fan. My son and I are reading The Hobbit now. And um, I love in Lord of the Rings when Samwise Gamgee finds out Gandalf is alive. He says, I thought you were dead, but then I thought I was dead. Is everything sad going to come untrue? Is everything sad going to come untrue? For the Christian, yes. Yes. Heaven is where everything sad comes untrue. That day is coming. Hell, for the non-believer, is when everything happy comes untrue. That's hell. No more happiness forever. For the Christian, everything sad is going to come untrue. Hey, I don't know what you've been going through throughout this series. I trust God's been at work in your life. But God is immense. He's in control. He's bringing you to a new place of strength, to a new fresh understanding of how awesome He is. Walk by faith through the fire, and He will meet you there. Let's pray.